as I work my way through uh, the message this morning, I thought, you know, there's a lot of pessimism here. We need some real optimistic outlook. And I thought Psalm 96 just described what my, my heart was feeling. And so I texted Josh and I said, uh, Josh, could you read Psalm 96 instead? He said, I'd be delighted to. I forgot to tell Philip, however. Sorry, my brother. If you turn in your Bibles, oh, by the way, one quick thing on Josh. Uh, many of you are aware that uh, Josh and Miriam and the family are headed to Austria. We've been praying for them, um, asking God to work every detail through. And I just learned this morning that um, yesterday they put their house on the market. And I wish I could say, would you pray for a quick sale? But God was way ahead of us and sold it yesterday. So um, all things are beginning to fall into place for them. We praise the Lord for that and uh, rejoice and continue to pray for you guys as uh, you walk step by step in God's timetable for uh, going to the country of Austria. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Ecclesiastes. Some years ago, I attended a, Portland, a seminar in Portland, Oregon, and the speaker challenged 250 pastors who were present that day to preach through the book of Ecclesiastes. And we kind of all looked around the room and wondered, is he serious? And, um, and then I began to pray about that. And about two years later, um, I decided that I would take him up on his advice and preach through the book. He believed that the book was as relevant uh, in Solomon's day as it is in ours, and I really do believe that in the life of our church back then, it really helped our folks uh, plan for the uh, coronavirus pandemic something that never had really taken place in the world in which we live in our own experience and I believe helped prepare them for some of the uh, adverse conditions that we would find over the next couple of years. Well, recently I've been thinking about teaching some of that material um, at a CLI this spring. And um, this morning I decided to provide an opening introduction to Ecclesiastes just to whet our appetites. So this is kind of a pre-promotion for that particular CLI coming in the future, and I trust that the Lord will uh, use our study time together to uh, not only get you to think about things eternal, things heavenly, but also to get you to participate with us in that seminar. Now, over the years, and I think this may be one of the reasons why a lot of pastors hesitate to preach through this book, many have struggled to understand why the book is even inspired. Why would God ever allow Solomon, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, to bathe in the passing pleasures of sin when Moses refused to experience the pervasive presence of money, power, and prestige, idols of the unredeemed heart, and to turn God's kingdom into an earthly carnal circus. When we read through the book of Ecclesiastes, sometimes we can come away confused more than actually having true understanding. 
And then he calls Solomon the wisest man who ever lived in 1 Kings chapter 1 verse uh, chapter 4 verse 31. Many who have read this book struggle to find gospel clarity within the 12 chapters presented. And while I don't think clarity was entirely its intent, I do believe that we will see much evidence of the hand of God in the ways that we live our lives today and in the ways Solomon did back then. It is true that the world has no ultimate cure for the maladies and miseries that we all experience. Many of you may have come into this room with some of those burdens today. But the world never really gets to the deepest root of our problem, namely sin. I've shared my testimony a number of times, and many of the times that I've shared that, I've told you that my biggest problem was identifying myself as a sinner. That may be somebody's problem here today. You just don't see yourself as a sinner. Oh, we know we're not perfect. We learned that last week. But we just don't see ourselves bad enough to be labeled a sinner. Solomon will be exposed in all of his sins so that the gospel might be put on display through Jesus Christ. Even Zondervan, the Bible publisher... Maybe some of you have Bibles that were printed by them. Uh, Wrote this on their website. The book of Ecclesiastes presents a challenge to casual Bible readers and academics alike. The book's theme and tone seem so contrary to the rest of Scripture. In fact, it's one of the few books of the Old Testament that the early church debated not including in the Bible. Perhaps the Rolling Stones were right. There is no satisfaction in life lived under the sun. Unless, of course, you have an eternal perspective, a heavenly view that leads to a relationship with Jesus Christ. They did not. I pray that you don't follow. One commentator put it this way, We relate to our journey of Solomon because for so many of us it is our own. When we attempt to find meaning in the pursuit of pleasure, the commitment to a job, or through plumbing intellectual depths, we all eventually find in each of these pursuits a dead end. Ecclesiastes shows us a man who lived through the process and came out on the other side with a wiser, more seasoned perspective. Life is destined to remain unsatisfying apart from our recognition of God's intervention. It only remains to be seen whether or not we will place our trust in his sure and able hands, end quote. So as we read this book, likely likely written toward the end of Solomon's life, we will learn that the king had many regrets for pursuing life without God. And through many of the questions that he poses, with very few specific answers given, He forewarns the people about pursuing the desires of the natural man without a heavenly perspective. In fact, keep this in mind. In fact, one particular pastor said he really wished this book was at the very beginning of the Bible because it raises all kinds of questions that all of the other 66 books answer. And if we had all of our questions right at the outset, we could then begin to explore the truth um, and find those answers in the remaining Word of God. 
Well, I pray that we have ears to hear this morning what the Spirit is saying to us all. Now, my outline this morning, if you're going to take some notes, will be divided into three categories. The contrast, the content, and the conclusion. The contrast, the content, and the conclusion. And as I said, you might just consider this morning to be a flyover with a purpose. I want to give you an opportunity to try to understand and make some sense of the book so that when we dig in a little bit later in the spring, uh, we'll be prepared to really hear the wisdom that Solomon gives to us all. I don't want to just tickle our ears this morning with more information. I really am praying that God will use this study to help us pursue Jesus and to protect us from all kinds of unrighteousness that the world bombards us with each day. I think God is doing us all a big favor through this book by providing a window into Solomon's fleshly impulses so that we would be spared the embarrassment of repeating the same godless mistakes. Will we heed that wisdom? I wish I could say yes, but as my experience tells me, throughout the world and throughout the church, many do not. Now the contrast in the book of Ecclesiastes is rather simple. Your journey in this world will travel on at least one of two paths, maybe both. You live as a natural man under the sun, and or you will live under the sun with a heavenly perspective. I would venture to say the majority of us in this room fall into the latter camp this morning. It's a worldview that most of us have embraced. And by the way, when we talk about under heaven, we're just not talking about having God's perspective. We're really talking about having the mind of Christ. Being in Jesus. Knowing Him as our personal Lord and Savior. And living our life in obedience to His Word. In 1 Corinthians 2, Paul contrasts the natural man with the spiritual man. He says that the one lives life without God, the other lives life with the mind of Christ. Believers have the mind of Christ. But really a question for us as we study this book together is what advantage does having the mind of Christ give you? Are you appropriating the truths that transform into your daily walk with Jesus? And we're also going to discover that Solomon asks more questions than he answers. The Holy Spirit knows that it is the rest of Scripture that provides so many of those answers. So when you study this book, you're going to find yourself, "Ah, I know where that answer is found. I know the text that teaches that. I know where in the New Testament I can find uh, Jesus' life-changing word for me. You may not get it from the study of the book itself, but as you study this book, the questions that Solomon raises will have no meaning for those who live under the sun and tremendous meaning for those of us who live under heaven. Well, let's begin our journey by looking at Ecclesiastes 1 and verse 3. Solomon says, what does man gain 
by all the toil at which he toils under the sun. And then if you'll just drop down to verse 14 for a moment, there he tells us that he has seen everything that has been done under the sun. This is an experiment that God has given Solomon the ability to be able to witness so that he can speak to us out of his wisdom that we might not make the same mistake. In God's providence, the Lord allows him to experience everything under the sun. None of us will actually ever have experienced what he did in its entirety. Now please notice that in verse 2, the ESV translates the Hebrew word koheleth with the English word preacher. But there are actually many scholars who see Solomon to be more of a counselor or a sociologist or a facilitator who is observing life without actually answering all of the questions. He seems to lack absolute authority, which is actually antithetical to that of a preacher. Most of the time when the Word of God is opened here and, and, the, and the Word of God is preached, it's preached with authority. In fact, Paul said to Titus in Titus chapter 2, verse 15, to speak with authority, to preach with authority, let no one disregard you. The Word of God is to come to bear on our lives so that we really can't find the loopholes to, to, to wiggle our way out from under its authority. The phrase, under the sun, is used 26 times to refer refer to all things that are natural. We are living our lives right now under the sun. Well, I wish we could say we're living our lives under the sun. I'm not sure I've seen the sun in several days. I thought this was Florida. We moved to Florida to get warmth and sunshine, and God has given us this. Furthermore, from a secular point of view, as chapter 1 points out, the problems of this world appear to be circular. Maybe another word would be repetitive. These cycles seem to repeat themselves year after year, and there's no controlling the outcomes. This too is vanity, says Solomon. Look with me, for example, at verse 4. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Uh, When I used to work in various cities, I would see millions of people hurrying to work every day. Trains, buses, taxis, bicycles, maybe just masses of people on foot. If you've ever been to New York City in the morning or late in the afternoon, you, you know what I mean. Most of them, too, were not smiling as they traveled. They were hustling their way to wherever they had to go. They were navigating the transportation system. And, and, and oftentimes it just looked like a, a, a hustle and bustle of humanity struggling to find their place in this world. Look at verse 5. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. Sunset after sunset after sunset comes and goes. Does anything really change? Verse 6. The wind blows to the south and goes round to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. Hurricane season comes and goes every single year. 
I, I saw more generators being built this year than I've seen in the years that we've been, but that's because of the experience that many have recently had. Verse 7, all streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. The cycles of life just seem to repeat themselves year after year after year. And few of us can explain the hydrological cycle, but that's what Solomon observed. It may not have been fact, but these were his observations. In our natural state, we do not see creation from God's point of view. Our eyes needed to be open to the truth. I remember some years ago, my brother and I, my brother not being a believer, we were standing on the pinnacle of a mountain in the the mountainous country. I think it was actually somewhere in the... um, When you get old, you forget. (laughs) Yellowstone National Park. I knew it would come to me. And we stood there. And I was just praising the Lord for what I saw before me. And he just said, oh, it's such a nice view. Uh, There's there's a different response between those who love Jesus and and those who do not know him. Um, In our natural state, we just don't understand life from a biblical point of view. Praise God that you have been given life, that your eyes have been opened to see the truth of God's Word and to praise Him. We started the service with praising Him. We spent time in prayer this morning praising the Lord and celebrating who He is and what He has done because our eyes have been opened. But there are many scoffers in this world. Peter He exposes some of the scoffers in 2 Peter 3 when he says, Where is the promise of his coming, they say? Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. That is the outlook of someone who only lives under the sun. Some years ago, when I was a Christian school administrator, I attended a class for history teachers at an ACSI convention. And this amazing teacher began the class with two symbols on the board. One was a circle and the other was a straight line. He then asked this question, which exhibit describes your view of history? The circle in exhibit A or the straight line in exhibit B? In other words, do you see history as repeating itself, defined by the circle in Exhibit A? Or do you see history as a timeline demonstrated by the events in Exhibit B? Well, here in chapter 1, Solomon describes life from an earthly viewpoint, and he sees it as circular, going round and round, going nowhere really. And when you look at the events of our world through this particular lens, you will come away often with that perspective. But when we read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, we see God's wisdom as a straight line moving through history. Yes, sin is repetitive and deceptive in many creative ways, but the sovereign providence of God is new every morning. We are all moving in a straight line toward the finish line of faith. Each of you appears somewhere on that straight line. 
Your life does matter to God. He created you and He saved you for a very special purpose. Your world and your life is not going round and round, but there is a beginning and an end. The Alpha and the Omega has a purpose for why you are here, for why you've been born. And it is not just to seek as much enjoyment from life under the sun as is humanly possible, but it is to find your fulfillment in the joy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ecclesiastes will raise those issues and, Lord willing, the Spirit of God, the Word of God, and Jesus Himself will give us the wisdom we need to understand it. Now, in helping us understand the, the answer to the question of purpose and meaning, Ecclesiastes attempts to move us beyond the natural to the spiritual. By God's grace, Solomon has also been gifted with the ability to seek out wisdom all that is done under heaven. If you'll turn with me to chapter 2 and verse 13. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly as there is more gain in light than in darkness. His eyes were beginning to be open. There is a huge difference between living life under the sun and living life under heaven. Here back in chapter 1, the teacher concludes that everything done under the sun without a heavenly perspective is vanity, a striving after the wind. In fact, if you look at verse 15, he says, What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. There is no way that the world is able to fix the problems that we find in life, especially problems related to our eternity. And while there have been many advances in medicine and technology, and we praise the Lord for those breakthroughs, mankind still doesn't have the ability to change the ways of life, to change the human heart. Now, as we turn to chapter 2, we often see what Solomon saw, and that is that no pleasure, no treasure, no possessions, no job, no earthly estate, no entertainment, all the things that you and I tend to chase after will not satisfy. In our culture, there are many authors and many artists that express this frustration with the human life. Solomon confesses this in chapter 2, verse 10. He says, And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. And then if you'll continue to verse 17, in his frustration, he said, So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. I need to ask you at this point, where are you in this continuum? Are we looking to this world to satisfy all of our issues in life? Are we looking to the things that we experience every day to be that which satisfies when only God can provide that? 
Solomon continues by admitting that in this fallen world, what happens to the fool also happens to the wise as well. And what he's simply saying is that as you live your life in this world, everything that the world experiences, you'll begin to experience. We weren't immune from the hurricane that devastated so many places close to us, so many people close. Some of you actually probably found yourself struggling to find somebody to help you with repairs from the damage that you as a believer encountered as well. Solomon is frustrated. Initially, he expresses his frustration both for the unbelieving world in which we live, and yet that unbelieving world affects all of us as people. But then there's a shift that takes place. And would you notice this shift in chapter 3? He says, For everything, verse 1, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Many of the joys and perils that we experience aren't just the consequences of living under the sun. They actually are God-ordained. Yes, living in a sin-cursed world is bad enough, but also living with a biblical worldview can be difficult. It doesn't mean that just because you receive Jesus that all of your problems go away and that life is going to be wonderful all the time. It does mean, however, that you will have a very different perspective when trials and troubles come. James says, consider it all joy. The world doesn't consider it all joy when trials and tribulations and difficulties come. But you and I as believers have a new perspective in Christ. We have His mind and what He values we will begin to value. And even though life sometimes gives us hardships, we're not necessarily going to respond the same way that the world would respond to those trials. In 1965, this will age me and you, the musical group The Birds. Anybody remember that name? They actually put Ecclesiastes 3 to music. Uh, The title of the song was Turn, 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 and if you Google it this afternoon and listen to it, if you haven't heard it in a long while, you're going to find that all of the lyrics of the song reflect what is taught here in 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 Ecclesiastes 3. What Solomon is doing here is acknowledging that everything in life, birth, death, All the trials and all the struggles, all the experiences living under the sun brings comes to both the believer and the unbeliever alike. And what we see in the book of Ecclesiastes is this schematic will flip-flop back and forth. Um, Part of understanding this book is to know that Solomon isn't always describing one or the other. He sometimes merges the two. And the rest of Scripture helps us distinguish one from the other. Now secondly, I want to move from the contrast to some of the specific content. Because the natural man thinks that the Bible is outdated, irrelevant, that faith in Christ is old and archaic, that this book has no real relevant contribution to our contemporary culture. We know that's not true, but sometimes we have to sit down with unbelievers and help them to see that the Bible is very relevant, and Solomon wants us to understand this book is relevant as well. 
I once had a cousin who sadly passed away, and he mocked me for becoming a Christian. Like his dad, he told me that the Bible was a myth, Jesus Christ a figure of man's imagination, the church a collection of conservative people who needed a place to gather in order to propagate their bigoted and erroneous views. I mean, maybe some of you have members in your family who do not share your faith or your trust in God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Maybe some of you struggle with the same kind of issues because you have people in your family network or maybe at work uh, who mock your love for Jesus and the ministry through which you serve the Lord. They laugh when you quote the Bible and probably likely limit their discussions to only things relevant to under the sun. Beloved, this book is not a laughing matter. It is a serious warning to all of us that outside of Christ, all is vanity. It is meaningless. It is a striving after the wind. Content of Ecclesiastes is rich, rewarding, and it has eternal ramifications. It's as relevant today as when Solomon wrote it. So if before we're tempted to join the chorus of those that might mock God and His Word and ignore the teachings of Scripture, uh, we, we need to see this book as a mirror into our very own lives. I am not a betting man, but I would venture to guess that there are many of you in this room who can identify with Solomon's debauched past. Remember, we were sinners before we ever became saints. And as we noted last week, we are still pressing on toward the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. None of us have arrived. We're not perfect yet. I grew up in a home where sin thrived every day. When you are the center of your own universe and you don't get what you want, sin thrives. God knew me so well that he wrote about me in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. He said, for people will be, and you can just put in my name, put in my name there. Lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. You say, Pastor, last week you told us that people thought you were a good kid. Well, that's because verse 5 also described who I was. It said, having the appearance of godliness, but not experiencing its power. The Bible says that man looks at what? The outside. What does God look at? The heart. And when he sees my heart, or he saw my heart as it was as a sinner who needed a Savior, all of these things were true. Oh, I would blame them on my parents. I might blame them on the world. I might blame them on my friends. But as we say, when you point the finger at somebody else, three fingers are pointing back at you. And I needed to come to grips with my own personal sin before I would ever pursue 
a Savior. In fact, just ask my wife Sandy. During our first year of marriage, I was not a happy husband. But Sandy wasn't my problem. I was her problem. My own sin made me miserable. I needed to be rescued, not from the world around me. I needed to be rescued from me. Paul in Romans 7 verse 24 says this, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And you know, if you keep reading Paul's story there, what does he say? He said that his story is found in the risen Lord. Jesus is the one who delivered Paul from all of his heartache, all of his trial, from his own sin. I know many of us think this is one of the greatest um, hymns that mankind could ever sing, but I wonder if we've really thought about the words, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a... That was good. Well-trained. But you know what? Many people don't know that, don't believe that. The world certainly doesn't understand that. And repentance from sin is the first step in coming to Christ. But I could not repent of my sin until I agreed with God that I was a sinner. And that didn't happen overnight. I wrestled with God for two years before His love broke through, before His Word convicted my heart, before I realized my need for Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior. Well, you know what? In this book, Solomon is brutally honest about his confused, sinful past. He doesn't hide anything. Through the ministry of the Spirit, God exposed it all. And what we're going to see is that under the sun, David's son chased after women and power and profit and fame. And in the end, it brought him all unspeakable shame. This too, he admits, was vanity, a chasing after the wind, until a relationship with Jesus Christ is found. Now as we continue to look at the content of this book, we not only find Ecclesiastes to be relevant, exposing our sin, but we're also instructed by the preacher to seek reliance on God. In the midst of our daily routines, we are to trust the Lord through the normal events in life. And while this truth might seem hidden or obscure, if you live on earth with a heavenly perspective, you will understand what I'm saying. You'll understand that the only way that we can find meaning and purpose in life is to run to Jesus Christ. For example, we all have money. We're all entrusted with money to steward. Um, but as I manage my money from a heavenly perspective, I must understand that it all belongs to God. He owns it. It's His. We're just the guardians of it, the stewards, the caretakers. And whether we work or we play throughout the day, we should pray to the Lord in heaven. Father, help me to be a witness for You through the power given by the Lord Jesus Christ. I want all of my earthly decisions to reflect Your written revelation, which I continually seek to hide in my heart. Psalm 119, verse 11. 
I want to bring all of my issues to the Lord and ask Him to grant to me the wisdom to know how to manage my life in a way that will bring Him glory. Maybe I have questions about my employment or my budget or my marriage, parenting, conflicts with relationships, anger, lust, leadership, or just questions about my daily walk with God. The Bible has all the answers to these questions and more. I'll never forget when we became new parents. And we were buying some of the secular books out there just to figure out what we were supposed to do. And then we met another brother in the Lord and he said, you know, what are you doing? Who are you following? Where'd you get this piece of advice? And, um, and he said, don't you know that the Bible has much to say? And if you don't know that, go to Fred's class on parenting when he offers the next one. It's wonderful, it's marvelous to have your eyes open to the truth and to understand that God actually speaks into every issue of life. But He does so as Jesus Christ is Lord. You can't find answers to these questions unless Jesus Christ is on the throne, seated on the throne in your heart. Many try to compartmentalize their life. They put Jesus over here and they put all the other issues over here. You just can't do that. Jesus is actually the one that's responsible for caring for all of those issues. And until we realize and recognize that, we too will be frustrated and we might cry out with Solomon, all is vanity, futility, is striving after the wind. I want you to turn, if you're not there already, to chapter 2 and see another verse. Kind of give you an example of this, beginning in verse 18. Solomon expresses frustration over the outcomes of work. Do you ever have that experience? Does work ever frustrate you? In, some, in Solomon's world, someone else has profited from his labor under the sun, when they didn't do anything to deserve it. In his mind, I know he's thinking, is that fair? And yet, in the midst of Solomon's under the sun frustrations with fairness, he writes this in verse 24. There is nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from Him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? You know, that really hits the nail on the head. Apart from God, we find fulfillment, we find satisfaction. I mean, not apart from God. In Christ, we find fulfillment, we find satisfaction. Apart from Him, we'll often find frustration. And we won't think things are fair. Even doctrinally, I've talked to believers who struggle with the doctrine of predestination. They want to believe that they have control in the matter. They want to believe that whether they accept Jesus or reject Jesus, it's entirely up to them. They don't want to understand that God has chosen from the beginning, before time began. And they struggle to accept the Word of God, accept what the Bible teaches in that relationship. I am so thankful that God chose me. 
and that he didn't wait for me to choose him. I don't know about you, but God is the one who initiates in, in every way and in everything. I'm so thankful that he is the one that has moved forward. He first and foremost came down from heaven by sending his son so that he might rescue us from our sins. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. I don't get my sins forgiven by going to Jesus. Jesus actually comes to me and rescues me and saves me and saves and rescues me from my sins so that I would find eternal life in him. I wonder if you are content with the blessings that God has given to you and you see them as coming from the hand of God, as a gift from God. When you enjoy something, is it because of you or is it because of God? Do you find gratitude and enjoyment for what you have received? Uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 7 um, exclaims, what do you have that you did not receive? And really, when we begin to evaluate our life, the answer to Solomon's question is found there. Nothing. I've received everything that I have as a gift from God. Do I praise Him and thank Him, or do I grumble and complain? These are some of the very practical issues that this book will discuss. By the way, there are also uh, many expressions of grace in Ecclesiastes. If we will just see them from the hand of the Lord. Let me just kind of give you some of them that are listed throughout the book. Chapter 3, God has given man the desire to, to seek things eternal. I didn't even have a desire. Romans 3 says, I wasn't seeking God. He's the one who placed that desire in my heart. Verse 11, what a grace gift. He also encourages man to celebrate his job. Be thankful that you even have a job. Even though it may be hard as a result of the curse in Genesis 3, it is a gift of God's grace. Solomon praises the benefits of quiet. And he rejoices when believers have friends who can help carry the load. Uh, the older we get, and, and some of you senior citizens know, you need help from others and you're thankful for the people that God has placed within the body of Christ who can come alongside and help you. He says it's better to be poor and wise than to be old and foolish. Well, this is a grace from God. Sleep, chapter 5, verse 12, is to be appreciated as a gift from God. I know many of you sometimes struggle with getting to sleep at night or staying to, at, to sleep. And, and while there are many aids that might help you along the way, when you have a good night's sleep, you get up and you, I hope you praise the Lord because it indeed is a gift from Him. How about contentment? That's a grace gift as well. Enjoy what you have and be satisfied, whether it is little or much. Even funerals are said to be a grace gift from God. Why? Because when you sit in a funeral, what do you think about? Your own future, your own eternity, your own death. And hopefully that will cause you to think about whether when you die you're going to go and be with the Lord or whether you'll perish and spend eternity in hell. These are all grace gifts that sometimes I don't think that we really think much about that Solomon brings to us in this particular book. 
By the way, I also appreciate some of his poetry and the way that he phrases some things that, um, that just reflect on the character and majesty of God. In chapter 3, verse 11, he says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. You know, maybe the time isn't quite right for you to experience something. And you grow jealous or envious because somebody else is experiencing what you want. Do we not understand that in God's timing, if He wants us to experience something, we will? It doesn't mean that just because somebody's going through something at this moment in their life that you have to go through the same thing. In fact, some of you are probably thankful that you're not going through some things that other people have to endure. Maybe you could help relieve their burden and bring some joy to their life in those times. He says, wealth, possessions, and the power to enjoy them. This too is the gift from God. You say, well, I worked really hard. I deserve everything that I get. You don't realize all the sacrifices that I've made as a result of the labor that I've performed under the sun. No, I think we all do. What Solomon or what the Word of God wants us to understand is if we have a heavenly perspective, we will thank God and not just pat ourselves on the back. Yes, in Ecclesiastes we will discover that life is messy and often unfair. Humans are sinful and selfish and finite, yet God is sovereign, forgiving, and eternal. And having a heavenly perspective makes all of the difference in our lives. I want us to turn lastly to the conclusion. And really, if you'll go with me to chapter 12, and we'll dig into this in greater detail. But he says in verse 13, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment whether every sec- with every secret thing, whether good or evil. You might think that this ending is too brief. That Solomon doesn't say enough. We as believers on the other side of the cross, we certainly understand the gospel. Maybe we're waiting here for a gospel presentation and, and Solomon didn't really give it. Or, or did he? Have you ever pursued the phrase, the fear of the Lord in Scripture? Have you ever studied it out? You'll find that it's probably um, 50 or 60 times in the Old Testament alone, not to mention the number of times that Jesus might use it. We learn in Proverbs 9 verse 10 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. True saving faith is all wrapped up in the fear of God. In fact, I really believe that he's not saying be afraid of God. He's actually saying, in Christ, by the way, would you just notice that in verse 11, he says that the word of God, which are like nails, like goads, are given by one whom? Look at it. Whom? Shepherd. Shepherd. 
shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. He understands that Jesus Christ, who is the shepherd, Messiah to come, who is the shepherd that we all need, is the one who has given us eternal life. And he's going to see that this is important because Solomon speaks about judgment in the last book, uh, last verse of this chapter. Something that I don't think any of us would think that Solomon would want to even address. In light of his past, in light of his history, in light of where all of his sin has taken him, probably one of the last things that Solomon would want to discuss is judgment. And yet, he ends the book reminding us that God is a judge. And yet, when we study the fear of the Lord, we're going to find that the fear of God should be our greatest delight. Jesus is our greatest delight. Uh, one book that I think is a must-read on this subject, if you want to write it down, it's called Rejoice and Tremble by Michael Reeves. Rejoice and Tremble. Fearing God does not cause us to be afraid of God, but to actually rejoice in His presence. And uh, I would love for you to pick up a copy of that. I wish we had more time. We'll talk in the seminar a little bit more about that. I asked Josh if he would read Psalm 96, because Jesus should be our greatest delight. The Lord should bring a smile to each one of our lives every day as we enter into this world that many people find to be meaningless, a futility, a chasing after the wind. Uh, here's just a few lines from what we heard earlier. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Let the heavens be glad and the earth rejoice. Um, I, I don't know about your relationship with Jesus Christ, but those are some of the things that swell up in my heart as I walk with Him each day. And yet Solomon reminds us, as I said in verse 14, that every deed will come into judgment, um, whether good or evil. And by the way, this isn't the first time that Solomon speaks about judgment. If you were to go back to chapter 3, verse 17, he says in his heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. Chapter 5, verse 7, God is the one you must fear. Chapter 11, verse 9, Rejoice, O young man, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Solomon has a profound sense that there is a day of judgment coming, and everyone who lives under the sun will give an account to God for his life. Are you ready to stand before the Lord and give an account? Will you learn from Solomon and hear the words that he gives to us? Wise words that help us to think through whether or not we truly have a walk with Jesus or whether, as I said last week, we're just pretending. The New Testament is very clear that there is a day of judgment coming. The mockers in 2 Peter 3, they mocked because everything seemed to appear as it always has been. And in their mind, they believed it will always be the same. But Peter reminds them that there is a day of judgment coming. 
and the Lord is saving those He's chosen to save, will you believe? Will you trust Him? Will you open your mind and your heart to the Lord Jesus? Will you confess your sin knowing that as you do, He is faithful and righteous to forgive you of your sin? And He's the one that enables you to be righteous because He covers you with His righteousness. Solomon's problem here really is that he tries to live life with the righteousness of man and not the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And you know what? None of us can live standing on our own righteousness. We all need the righteousness of Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul said, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. These are wise words given by one shepherd. A shepherd that Solomon points us to in this book. I pray that you will enjoy life under heaven. Rejoice and know that while you find satisfaction in living for Jesus, the best is still yet to come. Uh, The devil has written some lies out there in books that tell us that the best is here and now. No, the best is yet to come. And I hope that you're all looking forward to that day. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this quick flyover, if you will, on a book that you have inspired for our benefit. Thank you for exposing Solomon's sins, for his willingness to confess those sins, and yet for his willingness also to see that your hand is the hand that we must embrace. Jesus Christ is the answer to every need that we have as we live life under this sun. Help us, Lord, to have a heavenly perspective, to run to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and to know that He's the one that has every answer we need concerning life. And Lord, I do pray for those that might be here this morning that don't have a relationship with You Maybe they're struggling with some of the things that Solomon struggled with and admitted to. I pray, God, that you would help them to see that it is sin that is the issue and that sin is in their life and hindering them from a relationship with you. Would you open their mind and open their hearts to the truth of your word? Help them to see that Jesus Christ died for their sins. He was buried. He rose again the third day so that we too might have victory over the sins that He came to die for. And that we might live life in celebration and joy and live life to the fullest for His name's sake so that you would get all of the glory and the praise. And we thank you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.